This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. back to check the locks podcast as always i'm john connor i'm olivia cornu saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case before we get started as always olivia it's wonderful to see you how are you how has your week been my week's been busy as usual um i think i've got a lot on my plate right now being a student and a full-time employee and a podcaster but i'm making it how are you i am hanging in there as well just working researching things of that nature. So I'm glad the week has been busy, but good. You know, sometimes people say being busy isn't bad and complaining is like a rocking chair, right? Gives us something to do, but doesn't really get us anywhere. So (laughs) (laughs) I like that analogy. It's very truthful. No, I'm just being silly. I know that you got a lot going on and, you know, I'm sure at times it can definitely feel like, you know, there's just a lot on your shoulders. So I am glad that we get to sit down and hang out and, record these episodes. And I have to tell you last week we did those two short episodes Mm -hmm. this week. I was like, okay, we were short last week. I am coming in. I think I'm bringing the heat this week and I'm excited to see what you think. I have a feeling this episode is going to get under your skin and I'm going to go ahead and just throw it out there. I think this is going to be pretty high on the deadbolt test. So I'm excited to hear what you think, what the listeners think. I'm going to go on a limb and guess you didn't take a look at my notes. Am I correct? You're always correct. I don't even know why you ask. I like the shock factor. All right. Gotcha. Well, what I will tell you is going through this just to kind of give you a heads up. I did get some kind of Israel keys vibes, things like that. And I remember Ooh. that was a, that was mm-hmm. a heavy hitter on the show. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just glancing at it, does this look like anything that is familiar to you or anything of that nature? I feel like the name is familiar, but I don't, I don't, I probably don't know it. Yeah, we are going back a little bit of a ways to cover this, so it may not be something that's super fresh, but I'll be honest, I had never heard of this case, and after I went through it, I was like, I cannot believe I've never heard of this case until now. But what do you think? Should we just dive into it, start breaking it down, get into the story? Yeah, let's see what you got. You 
you got all this hype going. Better bring the heat, man. I know. I hope I live up to it. In 1974, Angela Kovic needed someone to talk to. She was a cocktail waitress from San Francisco who had recently gotten divorced. Lonely and looking for a connection, she decided to try a pen pal, and she began corresponding with a man who was incarcerated in Florida's Rayford's prison. This man was Paul John Knowles. And as the two wrote each other back and forth, Angela found herself falling for the convict. But she had no idea about his troubled past. Paul John Knowles was born in 1946. He was handsome and charismatic, and people who met him described him as a mix of Ryan O'Neill and Robert Redford. Now, I'm going to guess you know who Robert Redford is. Yeah, but I need to Google Ryan O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill, I believe, was in Paper Moon, which was a huge movie at the time. Oh, he's cute. So needless to say, Paul John Knowles, being a mix of Robert Redford and Ryan O'Neill, was a very handsome young man. Now, in 1954, at the early age of eight, he was arrested for the first time. And what started as petty theft crimes eventually escalated. And at the age of 19, Knowles was arrested for kidnapping a police officer. He would eventually be released for the kidnapping, but over the next eight years, Knowles would cycle. He would commit a burglary or auto theft and be arrested again, spending roughly six months of every year in jail. Which when I was researching, I was like six months out of every year in prison in or jail of some sort. I was like, that would drive me crazy. That is so long. Yeah, it's like starting over every time, you know, like you can't keep your house. You can't pay your bills. So it's not like you're not doing anything. Like every time you have to like start over, try to get a job, try to, you know, start from scratch. No, definitely. I'm right there with you. I was just like, man, that's got to feel half a year every year. Just to be in jail, it sounds so intense to me. I was like, no, thank you. Yeah, I was just thinking about 60 days in. I'm like, I don't even think I can make it three. I don't think I can make it 60 minutes. They'd be like, (laughs) what's up, fresh meat? And I'd be like, oh, no, I'm in trouble. I'm good. But Angela Kovic had fallen for the man that she had grown to know in their letters. In fact, she had even helped Knowles secure a lawyer. And eventually, he was able to make parole. Now, Kovic was so infatuated that she agreed to marry her pen pal. And arrangements were made for Knowles to fly to San Francisco. But when the pair finally met in person, something was off. According to Kovic, Knowles projected what she called an aura of fear. And she was scared by the man that she thought she knew. Additionally, her psychic had informed her that she needed to be careful. Her premonition showed a dangerous new man entering Kovic's life. And because of this, Angela called off the engagement and sent Paul John Knowles on his way. And Olivia, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because we've talked about psychics before in different episodes and things like that. So I didn't know if this is something that you were like, yeah, she said there was a dangerous man. Like, get out. (laughs) Like, are you fully bought in? Yeah, she did the right thing. (laughs) So you're fully bought in. Yep. Listen to the psychic. Yep. Sold. Well, psychic or not, she didn't know it at the time. But Angela Kovic had made a decision that would most likely spare her life. You see, Knowles was a particularly sinister type of monster. And the night that Angela Kovic dumped him, he went hunting. That evening, Knowles attacked and murdered three unknown victims in San Francisco. Now, to avoid law enforcement, Knowles returned home to Jacksonville, Florida the following day. And upon returning home, he went out again. While at a local bar, he got into a brawl and pulled a knife on a bartender. This time, 
Knowles was promptly arrested, but he wouldn't be held for long. On July 26, 1974, Knowles decided that he was sick of the bars that were holding him in, and he managed to pick the lock on his cell and escape into the night. And with that, Knowles' violent crime spree would continue. On the evening of his escape, 65-year-old schoolteacher Alice Curtis was home alone, not knowing what dark twist of fate was in store for her. Knowles, who was on the run, broke into Curtis's home. He bound and gagged the schoolteacher before stealing her belongings. He then fled the home in the victim's car. Sadly, while tied up, Alice Curtis would choke to death on her own dentures, which sounds like a terrible way to go. Yeah, like dentures are big. Yeah, I can definitely see like if you're bound and gagged and you have dentures in, they come loose, like it cuts off your airway. Mm-hmm. Sounds awful. That's yeah. That's like it reminds me of the movie Jawbreaker. I've seen Jawbreaker. She puts her in the back of the trunk and the Jawbreaker in her mouth, and then the Jawbreaker is just in her throat. That's what I think of when I think of choking on your own dentures. Yeah, does not sound like it would be a pleasant way to go at all. No. Now, for the next few days, Paul John Knowles hung around the city of Jacksonville, traveling in the stolen car. But when the body of Alice Curtis was discovered the police were able to link Knowles to her death. Soon, his photo was on the evening news. Now, knowing that the law was on his trail, Knowles decided to look for a place to abandon the stolen car, and he decided that a quiet residential street would be the best place. But unfortunately, this would lead Knowles to his next two victims. On August 1st, 1976, while driving in a neighborhood, he was spotted by two young girls. 11-year-old Lillian Anderson and her 7-year-old sister, Milette. And their family was actually acquaintances with Knowles' mother. And Knowles decided that he couldn't take any chances. He proceeded to kidnap both children. Viciously, he strangled both girls to death and then dumped their bodies in a Florida swamp. Sadly, their remains were never recovered. Little did authorities know that these crimes would be the beginning of a months-long murder spree across several states. Now, the following day, August 2nd, 1976, in Atlantic Beach, Florida, Knowles broke into the home of 49-year-old Marjorie Howe. He proceeded to sexually assault the woman before strangling her with a stocking. Knowles then fled the home with the victim's television set. As he continued his murderous road trip, Paul John Knowles came across a 13-year-old hitchhiker. And sadly, taking a ride from Knowles would mean the end of her life. Again, the victim was strangled and her body dumped. When her remains were discovered, she was originally listed as a Jane Doe. But in 2011, she would finally be identified as 13-year-old Ima Jean Sanders. And she had run away from her home in Warner Robins, Georgia, before accepting the fatal ride. After this murder, Knowles continued north. And on August 23, 1974, he broke into the home of Kathy Pierce. Pierce was 22 years old and living in Musella, Georgia. She had divorced her husband roughly six months earlier and was living at home with her three-year-old son. Her body was discovered when a neighbor came by to check on her. Knowles had strangled her to death in a bathroom using a cut piece of phone line. Thankfully, the child was unhurt. Now, by September 3rd, Knowles had made his way to Lima, Ohio, and it was there that he met a businessman named William Bates in a local pub. The bartender knew Bates well, and he recalled him having several drinks with a handsome young man with reddish hair. 
He also told authorities that the pair had left together that evening. And when Bates didn't return home, his wife alerted the local police. The vehicle that Bates drove was also missing. And while police were searching for the car, they found an abandoned Dodge Dart. This car belonged to Alice Curtis, the first victim that we talked about with the dentures. So he has already taken her car from Florida. He's now in Ohio and killed several people along the way just in the time that he's had her vehicle. I mean, this is wild. But, you know, back in the you know, early 60s, 70s, you could do this and get away with it because we talk about all the time the police were not communicating well across state lines at this time, you know, and just to think that now you can be blasted on social media and in two seconds, everybody knows who you are. And then back in the day, no one, it takes a long time for them to catch up with someone like this because they're always like two days behind. Yeah. I mean, we live in a time of like, license plate readers and things like that, where if you're driving a stolen car and you go through a light, they can see where you are immediately. You know, it's just, it's totally different. And we're definitely going to be talking about that here in just a little bit. Well, keep going. I'm intrigued by this case. It's definitely, he's definitely a monster. I will say that. We're just scratching the surface. Okay. Now, it turns out that Paul John Knowles had strangled William Bates to death and dumped his nude body in the woods. He then stole his money, credit cards, and car. The body of William Bates wouldn't be discovered until October of 1974. And Knowles was far from through with his hellish trip. He would travel through Sacramento, then Utah, eventually landing in Eli, Nevada to claim his next pair of victims on September 18th. This time, it was Emmett and Lois Johnson, an elderly couple who had been on a camping trip when they crossed paths with Knowles. Their bodies would be found bound and shot, and Knowles would later confess to murdering the couple to steal their credit cards. Three days later, on September 21st, Knowles had made his way to Sequin, Texas, and while driving, he spotted a woman on the side of the road. Charlene Hicks had been riding her motorcycle when it broke down, leaving her stranded. And when the handsome and charming Knowles offered to help with the ride, Hicks accepted, not knowing that it would mean her death. Knowles would proceed to sexually assault Charlene before strangling her with her pantyhose. Her body would be found four days later after being dragged through a barbed wire fence. By September 23rd, Knowles had now found himself in Birmingham, Alabama. And it was there that he met a beautician named Ann Dawson. Now again... This woman was immediately struck by Knowles, his good looks, and his charming personality. And for the next seven days, she would join him on his road trip, paying for expenses along the way. But by September 29th, Knowles had simply grown bored with Anne, and it was then that he murdered the beautician and dumped her body in the Mississippi River. Sadly, Dawson's body would never be recovered, and Knowles continued his travels. Oklahoma, Missouri, Iowa, Minnesota pushing down the urge to murder again. But by October 16th, he couldn't fight the temptation anymore. This time in Marlboro, Connecticut. Karen Wine and her 16-year-old daughter Dawn were in their home when Paul John Knowles broke in. Again, both women were sexually assaulted and strangled with nylon stockings. Their bodies would be discovered by Karen's other daughter, Cheryl. And this time, the only thing missing from the home seemed to be a tape recorder. Do you know how many states he's murdered people in? 
I was just thinking, is he going to cross off every state? Because it seems like he's murdered in every state at this point. And he gets around really quickly, um, especially if he's still driving around in a stolen vehicle. Yeah, and a lot of these states, like, you know, northern Florida is bordering Georgia and things like that. And you'll hear Georgia and Florida a lot. But it's exactly what you said, right? Like, back then, these departments didn't work together. So if I had a stolen car from Florida and I'm in Georgia... Nobody knows. What are the odds, you know? Right. And I have to tell you, Olivia, Knowles didn't plan on slowing down. Only a few days later, on October 19th, he barged into the Woodford, Virginia home of Doris Hovey. Knowles then proceeded to shoot her with a rifle that her husband owned. He then wiped the prints from the gun and laid it beside her body. And again, in William Bates' stolen car, Knowles hit the road. And what was interesting about that case is, again, they didn't find out until after he was apprehended. So they had no idea. They just found a woman shot dead with her husband's rifle, no fingerprints, anything like that. Oh, my gosh. So this poor husband probably got harassed for who knows how many years about killing his wife. A hundred percent. You know, they were just like, we have no leads. We don't know what's going on. Now, a short time later, Knowles found himself in Key West, Florida, when he came across two female hitchhikers. And by the time the girls entered the vehicle, Knowles had already decided their fate. But luckily, these two would not become victims. As Knowles was driving with the two young women, a police officer pulled him over for speeding. Now, remember exactly what we were talking about before. This is 1974. Knowles was driving a stolen car, but it was Bates from another state. And with no computer to run plates, the officer just didn't think to check. He gave Knowles a warning for the speeding and sent him on his way. Now, fortunately for the girls in the car, Knowles was spooked, and they ended up exiting the vehicle in Miami, Florida, along with their lives. Now, still shaken, Knowles decided it might be a good idea for him to contact his lawyer for advice. During that call, he confessed to his attorney what he had been doing on this road trip. When his defense suggested he turn himself in, Knowles refused. And not wanting to come to the office, he asked the lawyer to meet him in a public place. Now, during the short meeting, Knowles handed his attorney a taped confession, which I thought was really interesting because if you remember when he broke into Karen Wine's home where she was there with her daughter, the only thing that was missing was a tape recorder. Yeah. So he handed his attorney that taped confession and he then slipped out of town before the police could be notified. And by November 6, 1974, Knowles was back to his murderous ways, this time near Macon, Georgia. He had managed to befriend a man named Carswell Carr, and for some reason, Carr invited him to stay the night at his home. Also at home was Carr's 15-year-old daughter, Mandy. At some point in the evening, Knowles and Carr were having drinks when Knowles attacked, stabbing his victim viciously between 15 and 20 times. The attack was so intense that Carr actually suffered a heart attack. And once Knowles was finished with her father, he turned for Mandy, again strangling the teen with a nylon stocking. Now worse, after Mandy was murdered, Knowles attempted to commit an act of necrophilia on her corpse. However, he would later tell authorities that he was, quote, unsuccessful. And I couldn't find any definition of what he meant by unsuccessful, which I was very happy about but it's just a strange little detail that he would throw in there casually. Right. And why now after committing so many murders, why try that now? Um, Yeah. I mean, he's sexually assaulted before, but this seemed to be the first one. Yeah. Postmortem. 
Yeah. Now, after this, which also I was looking at the newspaper article for this, which I did link in the show notes, but the sheriff, the crime scene was so violent that he thought this had to be a group of what he called maniacs. So he thought this was more than one person who had carried out this attack on Carswell Carr and his daughter. Oh, wow. So just thinking about what that scene must have looked like. Right. Absolutely crazy. Now, only two days later, Knowles found himself in Atlanta, Georgia. And while bar hopping, he met a British journalist named Sandy Fox. Like many victims before, Fox was immediately smitten with Knowles, and the two spent the night together. However, Knowles was not able to perform over multiple attempts. But still, the pair traveled together until November 10th, and luckily, they simply parted ways. Now, it's believed that Fox was spared because she was a writer, and he believed that if and when he was caught, Fox would write about his life story and her experience with him. But Fox's friend, Susan McKenzie, wouldn't be as lucky. On November 11th, McKenzie accepted a ride from Knowles, and during that time, he pulled a gun and demanded sex. Thankfully, McKenzie was able to escape, and she immediately reported the incident to the police. But fearful of being caught, Paul John Knowles hit the road again, eventually finding himself back in Florida near West Palm Beach. This time, he approached the home of Beverly Maybe. Knowles identified himself as an IRS agent and asked if he could come inside the home. Once inside, Knowles took Maybe's sister hostage and demanded the keys to her car. Maybe cooperated and Knowles and his hostage left the home. Luckily, he would drop this woman off in Fort Pierce, Florida the following evening. Now, the day after that, on November 17th, a police officer named Charles Eugene Campbell recognized a car matching the description of Beverly Maybes, and he immediately pulled the vehicle over. But Knowles was ready, and as Officer Campbell leaned into the window of the vehicle, Knowles grabbed his gun and was able to wrestle it away from him. He then took Campbell hostage and placed him in the back of the police car. Knowles himself climbed in the driver's seat and took off. And once in the patrol car, he used the sirens to pull over a man named James Meyer. And unfortunately, Meyer fell for the ruse. As he exited the vehicle, he too was taken hostage. And both Officer Campbell and Meyer were placed in the back of Meyer's vehicle. Knowles then drove the men to a secluded area in Pulaski, Georgia. He forced both hostages out of the car and handcuffed them to a tree. Then, Knowles proceeded to shoot them both in the head at point-blank range. But by this time, the police were hot on his trail, and as Knowles attempted to flee the scene, he crashed the stolen vehicle into a tree. He then exited and started to run on foot, but police helicopters and dogs were not far behind. However, despite this, Knowles was able to make it outside of the manhunt perimeter on foot, which in my brain, I was like, how lucky is this evil, evil person? Because he's literally been murdering people across the country, pulled over and let go by police. He's in the middle of a manhunt. He crashed his car, runs on foot while being chased by dogs in a helicopter and still manages to outrun the manhunt. This is like a movie. Like this is unheard of. This is a true serial killer. I mean, this is, and it's just anybody. You just happen to walk cross paths with this person and you could be dead. Yeah, 100%. It's, you know, completely random, no rhyme or reason, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But I'm just like, how lucky can one evil son of a bitch be? You know what I mean? Because 
you would feel like the universe would, would be like, no, here's your chance to catch him like a million times before this, you know? Yeah. I'm over here as a nice person trying to be like, can I just catch a break? And this man over here is committing, I don't know, I even know how many murders. Mass murders. Ridiculous. Yeah. Well, just when he thought it was safe, Paul John Knowles ran into a surprise. A few miles away, a citizen armed with a shotgun cornered him, holding Knowles at gunpoint until the authorities were able to arrive and place him under arrest. And with that, the road trip from hell was over. Now, once in custody, Knowles confessed to over 35 murders. This included the 20 that the police were now aware of. Of course, the media latched onto the story, and they dubbed Knowles the Casanova Killer, referencing his good looks and his ability to charm women. I feel like I've heard the Casanova Killer, and I don't know if that's because it's in the murder encyclopedia I have by my desk, or if I just happen to come across it. But I don't. I definitely did not dig into it, but I feel like I've heard Casanova Killer before. Now, I thought I had heard it before, too, and then I mm -hmm. realized I was thinking about the dating game killer who was the serial killer in the seventies who actually made it onto the dating game game show mm -hmm. and like match with the bachelorette and all that stuff. So oh, when I was, maybe. when I first started, I was like, Oh, I think it's that guy. And I was like, no, not him. This is something completely different. So different. Yeah. Now over the next month, the police attempted to take Knowles to the different locations in which he had dumped his victims. They hoped to find peace for the families and to better understand the mind of a sadistic killer. Now, on December 18th of 1974, just a month after his arrest, Sheriff Earl Lee and Georgia Bureau of Investigations agent Ronnie Angel were transporting Knowles to Henry County. This was because Knowles was going to show the officer where Charles Campbell's handgun had been allegedly dumped. But while driving, Knowles attacked Sheriff Lee inside the vehicle, again attempting to wrestle away a gun. As they fought, Lee's gun actually went off through the holster in the vehicle. And that is when agent Ronnie angel decided to open fire firing three rounds and Paul John Knowles was dead instantly. His life ending as violently as he had lived it. His cross country murder spree was over, but until this day, so many questions remain. Why, why take the lives of all of those innocent people? But more hauntingly, are there more victims we just don't know about? Now, as far as Sandy Fox, from what I could tell, she did go on to write several books about her interaction with Paul John Knowles. You can actually check those out on Amazon. But Olivia, that's this week's case. Talk to me. What are you thinking? Was I right? Was it a heavy hitter? How are you feeling? I mean, John, last night I didn't sleep very well. So tonight I'm definitely not going to sleep very well. Because this is a true monster. We haven't had a true serial killing case like this in a while, I feel like. So good job for bringing the heat. I'm just amazed at how people could go on these murder sprees. And I just go back to the when I think about these serial killers and how they pick their victims. It's just being the randomness that's scary. You know, you could just walk past him in the grocery store and he's going to follow you home. And I go back to this because it's a Mr. Brooks thing. And one day you're going to watch this movie and you're going to say, yeah, Olivia, he picks out his victims. He kind of, it's all random. You know, Mr. Brooks at least watches his for a little bit, but it's just the randomness that creeps me out. I have to say, 
I a million percent agree with you. You know, the Night Stalker documentary on Netflix really got to me because Richard Ramirez was very much whoever was available, right? Old women, young women, like couple, like it didn't matter. It was whoever's window was unlocked, whoever house I could get into, right? right? And this had that same kind of feel, but it wasn't isolated to one area, mm-hmm. right? Like it's not like he's just killing in Florida. I'm fine in Louisiana. It's he's traveling all over with no rhyme or reason to where he's going and how his trip's going. Yeah, and like you said, in a time where there's no internet. You know, now it'd be like, you know, you go to Facebook news and it'd be police link murder in Florida to, you know, murder in Vermont could be tied to murder in Lima, Ohio. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just like like, the Idaho killer. He was caught in what, Pennsylvania? His house, uh, his parents home in Pennsylvania. I mean, that's three time zones away. You know what I mean? Yeah. But just to think that, you know, I could be sitting in a bar in Lima, Ohio, talking to some dude who two days ago was in Florida. And murdered, you know, two hitchhikers and dropped their bodies in a swamp. You know what I mean? Like, it's just the randomness of it. And I think the other thing, too, is the home invasion aspect where Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's like you're supposed to feel safe in your home. You know what I mean? And just this guy was just like, I'm coming in, you know, and it didn't matter if you were there by yourself. If you were there with a child, you know, he was he was going to do what he wanted to do, which is absolutely terrifying. I think this is. Like very much like that Israel Keys case, this is an example of just like true evil walking the earth, which is terrifying. The only difference between him and Keys is he's not leaving murder kits around. Israel was leaving them all over the country. When he was ready to kill, he just pulled out his little murder kit. Yeah, and that is terrifying, but I also think there's something equally as terrifying to the fact that it's like, I don't need a murder kit. Right, I'm just strangling you with pantyhose, yep. nylon socks. Yeah, maybe I drove by your house and was like, saw you through the window. And I was like, guess I'm breaking in there tonight, you know. And this is, again, you know, the 70s. It was before security cameras and ring doorbells. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, You just trusted your neighbors and you didn't lock the doors. Yeah. So as I was going through this, I was just like, there's so many victims, you know. And I wanted to make sure that I got the details as ironed down as I could because there is so much. So. I know at some points it might have been a little hard to be like, wait, in what order? But that's how I felt when I was going through and just be like, there's right. so many people, you know? Well, if we're talking deadbolt test, like I said, I have a pretty good idea it's going to be high, but where are you putting it? Well, before we start talking about the deadbolt test, I've created a new habit. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I keep one ear out nowadays. It's kind of like me checking the locks while we're doing the podcast so I can hear what's happening in my house or if someone's trying to come in my house. So for those who are listening, because, you know, podcast is an audio medium. No one can see what Olivia is talking about. She is currently recording the episode with only one ear under a headphone, which I am aware of that because when I edit these episodes that we do, sometimes I hear my own voice on your track. Oh, I wonder if you hear that. (laughs) And that's because you have one headphone off. But (laughs) I definitely get that, though, like there are times when we're recording while well, I have to like hit the mute button and turn around or I listen for Bradley. Uh, also, if everybody's asleep, I set the alarm. So if anybody comes in, like it blares. So I, I definitely get it because you're sitting here, you're back. Like you're like me, your back is to the door. I think that's the other scarier thing too, right? Is like if somebody came in behind you right now, we would both see it at the same, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I would see one direction. You would see it like, I don't know. It's creepy. So yeah. That's my new habit. And my alarm is already set tonight, but 
I've, I've caught myself doing it more and more. And it's just so I can hear because I can't hear under the headphones and I'm here alone, you know. But anyway, let's get back to the deadbolt test because I'm going to rate it a 10. This was a 10 for me. It's a 10. And I would ask you why, but I feel like we. There's no explanation needed. I mean, we covered it very in depth there just a moment ago, but I, I have to agree with you. I'm going to put it at 10 as well. He's you just know. a bad guy. Carswell Carr was a, was a dude that was just like, hey, you seem like a nice guy. Cause it, and I didn't mention this, but they think that he murdered Carswell Carr for, just for his clothes. He wanted his clothes. He'd probably given it to him. Yeah. So he got him to invite him to stay the night and then decided he was going to murder him to take his clothes. You know, it just goes to show that there are some people out there that doesn't matter, man, woman, adult, child, you're not yeah, safe. Yeah, he was killing everybody. He didn't care. Well, you're, you're putting it at a 10 also? I'm putting it at 10. Double tens this week. Double tens. That's the first time in a while, I think, too. We're coming in with mm-hmm. double tens. Yeah. We haven't had a good case like this in a while. Yeah, it has been a hot minute since we've had one that's coming this high on the rating scale, at least for you and I. But I'm very interested to see if the listeners feel the same way. So, you know, we have to throw it out to our locksmiths. Where does the road trip from hell fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know. Reach out to us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. Find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. If you're not in our Facebook group, what are you doing? Come hang out with us. We're at like almost 750 members. It's awesome to see all the new people joining and getting to talk with everybody and case suggestions and stuff like that. So if you're not in our Facebook group, we're in there all the time hanging out. Come hang out with us because we would love to get to know you. Olivia, this case, again, was like a ride through hell. I could definitely use a palate cleanser. Do you have a five-star review for us this week? Yes, I have a five-star review, and I think I could use one this week as well. But this week's comes from Miss Cobb, um, M-S-C-O-B-B-E. They said, I'm late to the world of podcasts, but I'm now fully invested in Check the Locks. Olivia and John have great chemistry, get straight to the facts, and their love of Taco Bell is very relatable. Cheesy gordita crunch, please. I'll be listening on my commute this fall. Thank you both. So thank you, Miss Cobb, Miss Kobe. I'm not really sure. M-S-C-O-B-B-E. Reach out to us. Let us know who you are so we can send you some cool stuff. Yes, Miss Cobb, Miss Kobe. We hope we're saying it right. But thank you so much for leaving that review. And more importantly, thank you for having amazing taste. Cheesy Gordita Crunch for the win. I'm a crunch wrap guy myself. With a little bit of extra nacho cheese. You can keep out the tomato and sour cream because I'm a savage. I don't want it. But... Glad that you share your love of Taco Bell with us because Olivia and I will both tell you it's one of our favorite foods. Mexican pizzas all day. Bean burritos. Ricky's here even saying she likes Taco Bell. Bean burritos. The poor man's Taco Bell. Extra onions, extra red sauce. That's Ooh, Ooh, extra onions. I bet you're fun to talk to after one of those. Yeah. Nonetheless, we really do appreciate you taking time to leave us that review. We would love to send you some goodies. We got some stickers, pins, magnets, buttons, all sorts of stuff. So reach out to us again. You can find us on Instagram at check the locks pod, Twitter at check the locks. If you're in our Facebook group, you can reach out there, slide into our DMS, let us know. And if you're not a social person, that is totally fine. Head over to check the Click the email button, send us an email, let us know where to get those goodies out and we will get them out to you right away. And Olivia, if somebody wants to have their five-star review read on the podcast, what is the best way to do that? Go to the Apple Podcast app, go to our show's homepage, scroll all the way to the bottom where you see all five of those purple stars. Click all five so they highlight dark purple and tell us what you like. Leave us a little love and maybe we'll read yours next week. 
That's right, folks. Olivia says it best, so I don't have to. Apple Podcasts, click those stars, leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. We talk about it every single week, but these reviews help us in so many ways. Gets us in our other shows recommendations, helps new listeners to find the podcast. And really, the only thing that we're trying to do is to grow our family, right? Every one of those reviews helps us to do those things. So if you have left us a review, just know that we appreciate it so much. If you have not, what are you doing? Head over to Apple Podcasts, or you can go into the description of this episode. There's a link. It'll take you right there. Leave that review. And as always, if you are interested in financially supporting Check the Locks, you can do so by becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Check the Locks to get signed up today. We got a lot of great benefits, exclusive stickers, t-shirts, coffee mugs, things that you can only get for being a patron. Plus, you get the episodes ad-free and early. So if you love Check the Locks but you hate commercials, Patreon is the way to go. So if you want to help us keep the lights on, you like what we do, you want to support us, that is patreon.com forward slash check the locks. Get signed up today. And if you can't financially support the show, we definitely understand just listening and sharing what we do with your friends and family means just as much, if not more. So if that is you, you're listening, you're sending links to your friends, your family, the people you care about, let them know about the podcast. Just know that we appreciate that again more than we could tell you. Just like we said, right? That's going to help us get in front of new listeners and really help us to grow our family. It's all about that grassroots approach. So if that is what you're doing, just know we appreciate you more than we could put into words. That is all that we have for this week's case, but please make sure that you're subscribed to Check the Locks on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. We will see you again next week with a brand new truly terrifying true crime case, but until then, don't forget to Check the Locks. See you next week. Mm -hmm.